I was a member of the Sullivanians from 1973 to 1979. My involvement inextricably altered my life, and this hour-and-a-half podcast tells the events of my life and chronicles my involvement and the aftermath. The collapse of the group has been documented before in several news and magazine articles, a dissertation, and most recently, a book, but never a first-person accounting, and this is what you will hear on this podcast. An artist since I was a child, later earning a master's from Brooklyn College with a passion for writing poetry, the genesis of this podcast began over 10 years ago when I wrote a memoir. Years passed as I tried to shop the book, but couldn't find neither an agent nor a publisher. The book languished on my computer, and then, with the advent of iMovie, I used my memoir as the scaffolding for a documentary that became an official selection of New Filmmakers New York 2020 and a Spotlight Documentary Bronze Award winner 2020 for artistic merit. When this creative journey began, the Sullivanians were largely forgotten, except perhaps by the several hundred former members, 500 at its zenith, many of whom, like myself, survived the control wrought by the Institute and therapists that 40 years later still resonate and begs to be heard. The full documentary can be seen on my YouTube channel, Shell Fine One. Thank you. Ever since my arrival in the group, whenever Amagansett was spoken about, it was in harsh conspiratorial tones. And now it was Memorial Day weekend. Classes had ended, and I was heading out to Amagansett to spend my summer none the wiser. I parlayed my apartment cleaning jobs into cleaning the summer houses, hoping to make enough money to meet all of my expenses. Lainey, with whom I had been dating since first meeting on Thanksgiving Day, and who I considered one of my best friends, was my date for the train ride and a sleepover later that night. We were meeting under the clock at Penn Station at 5 o'clock. Unfortunately, there were approximately 500 other people who had the same idea. Suddenly, a hand shot up, waving wildly above the crowd, and with only moments to spare, Laney helped me scoop up my duffel and painting gear and pushed aggressively through the crowd. The Sullivanians were out in force and had infiltrated the Long Island Railroad like a swarm of ants at a picnic, sending rush-hour commuters fleeing to other cars. The overhead bins were filled to the gunwalls with the usual and unusual. Suitcases and duffels, basketballs, golf clubs, typewriters, tennis rackets, and scuba gear, musical instruments and amplifiers and shopping bags of food. Liquor stashes appeared, sweaty bodies moved about unsteadily, and while some couples got hot and heavy in their seats, the more impatient ones had sex in the bathroom. It was a four-hour ride, and Laney and I were both a bit drunk when she finally opened up about the oranges of what had become a summer rituals. 
In the late 1950s, Seth Lewin and June Geddes and other leaders of the Institute began vacationing in Amagansett, usually a very peaceful hamlet on the eastern shore of Long Island. When the trainee program began in the late 60s, the trainees followed Seth and then the patients followed the trainees. The therapist summer homes were hidden away on Barnes Hole Landing, back from the road, under the trees, and weekend sessions were available, albeit in a bathing suit if needed. The renting of summer homes became ritualized. In early April, several group apartments, usually three or four, joined together to allay expenses, and from that larger group, the straightest looking were picked, people with real jobs like teachers and social workers, to travel to Amagansett in search of summer rentals. They had to give the impression they were renting for other professional men or women, and they had to have checkable references. This was important subterfuge because the local real estate agents could have no idea who they were really renting to as the Bonnikers, those who live there uh, year-round, wanted no part of the Sullivanians with their loud parties and deviant sexual experiments in their town and thought because some women held hands they were lesbians to boot. Weekends were crammed with committee meetings of all kind, cooking, car, shopping, party planning, and maintenance. But the most important committee was the date room committee. In smaller houses, the bedrooms were commandeered and a very complex schedule was devised. Those not slated for a date room on any given weekend night slept together dorm style on mattresses in one large room. Our common room was the attic, but if you were lucky, your date might have a date room when you didn't. In years past, the group rented modest houses in Amagansett, but this year, many more apartments had joined together and were renting actual mansions in East Hampton, equipped with a pool, tennis courts, sculpted gardens, and a billiards room. Amagansett was a time to indulge in your wildest fantasies, like a summer camp for grown-ups, with parties beginning after the beach and stretching into the night, all night. Live bands played, there were many talented musicians in the group, and everyone was drinking and dancing and having sex. Dancing was, a, it was in huge circles, but no party was complete without dancing the bump to the song of 1974, Lady Marmalade. Voulez-vous coucher avec moi ce soir? By the time the conductor called out next stop Amagansett, Laney had completed her condensed history, and soon we were standing on the platform, stretching and breathing in the salty sea air. As the dark, misty shapes of low-lying trees came into focus, the thick smell of honeysuckle exposed a wave of free-floating anxiety within me, and I was immediately transported to Parents' Day at Camp Indian Lake, the summer after my ninth birthday. Once again, my mother was late, and somehow I knew this time she wasn't coming at all. Sheila, at 13, was detailed to give me the news. She found me on my cot already crying, 
Mommy's not coming, she explained with sympathy. It's too long a trip for her to make in one day. Why the fuck did she wait until the last minute, I screamed at her, and why the fuck did she send us here at all? With a shiver, the memory faded, and Laney and I were swallowed by the darkness and echo of the sea as we made our way down the dark country road. In April, Monica Cipro had been the one unfamiliar face at the first summer house meeting, and it was hard to miss the lingering glances she seemed to be sending my way. Afterwards, she introduced herself, and we made a bunch of dates. After all, we were going to be in the same summer house. I had dismissed my one night with Heidi as a drunken rondelay, but I couldn't dismiss my feelings for Monica or hers for me. Our first day was spent in the Impressionist Galleries at the Museum of Modern Art. Afterwards, we walked across Central Park to the Upper West Side, ending up in my room. As we were playing a game of cards, Monica leaned over and caressed my breasts, kissing me tenderly on the mouth. When I told Freddie, all she asked was whether we'd touched each other down there. We had, and I wasn't ashamed, and though it was my first experience with a woman, it was startlingly familiar and erotic, and I was falling in love. Monica had been unsure about joining the summer house at all, but in the end had decided on a half share of alternating weekends. When she arrived the following weekend on the 10 a.m. milk run, we were immediately thrust into summer house activities but I was lucky enough to have been scheduled for a date room that night. Hours later, we were finally alone in the small room at the top of the stairs with its balmy sea breathing and flowered wallpaper. It was my birthday, and when I shared that Sheila's birthday was in two days and that as children we'd always celebrated on the day in the middle, Monica suggested I call her. I knew Monica spoke to her mother on occasion, but we'd never talked about it, and I knew I wasn't going to be calling Sheila and was annoyed that it had been suggested because we had waited all day to be alone. After a while, the comment was forgotten, but in the morning, a tempest arose, and we argued as passionately as we had made love the night before and I lashed out at her. I think you should stop calling your family and take a full share in the house and come out to Amagansett more often. That's really ironic, Cora, because I was going to tell you that after this weekend, I can see that this isn't all for me. I don't believe you. I I think this is all about you repudiating our relationship and letting your ex-husband and your family control your life. Monica's face went into lockdown. She walked away from me. Before speaking, her skin paler than usual before her sunburnt cheeks. You have no right to talk to me like that. You're not my therapist and you should consider that you've been brainwashed and you are more involved in the group than I care to be or that you should be. You can accept that, can't you? I think you should speak to your therapist, Monica. I love you. Don't you want to be with me? Please stop saying I should talk to my 
therapist because it makes me angry. And if you must know, I did speak to her earlier this morning and she said to do what feels right for me. I do love you, but I can't do this. Coming here was a mistake. Then she picked up her small knapsack and left the room. Monica wouldn't return my calls. The following week after our argument, she asked the summer house for her money back and her therapist had agreed that she wouldn't be coming back to Amagansett after all.